Well, I've told you that that we can divide Ephesians into two sections. And what I had told you is that the first section, which is chapters 1 through 3, tell us who we are in Christ. And they define the indescribable riches that are ours. They describe all that we have in Christ and the incredible privilege that is ours because we are in Christ and because we serve Christ. And then we said the second portion, which is chapters 4 through 6, it's there that we see Paul's instruction that says, look, because of all the incredible blessing that you have in being in Christ, this then is how you ought to live. Because you are so blessed, because you have such great privilege, now your behavior should reflect people who have such privileged position. And so you have to act like it. You have to be people who walk around with a behavior that matches your position. And if we are a church that is able to do that, what's going to happen is we're going to find that we will humble ourselves, that we will have lowly mindsets, won't we? That's what we've learned. We'll find that there is peace in our relationships with one another. We'll find that we're using words to build other people up. And we are using our words to bring a word of encouragement at precisely the right moment. We found that we'll be walking in wisdom. We'll be walking in understanding. We'll be walking in the light the Bible teaches us. We find that we'll submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. Wives will be submitting to their husbands. Husbands will be loving their wives sacrificially. Children, we learned last week, would be continually obeying their parents. We found the week before that that workers would be giving their best in the workplace and that employers would be doing the very best that they could to honor their employees. And through the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do all of these things. Wouldn't it seem like we were living in a little bit of a utopia? Wouldn't that just be fantastic? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, who wouldn't want to live like that? I'd want to be a part of that. And so as we reach this portion of Scripture, as we reach this portion of Paul's instruction, we might expect the result from all of those things to be Paul saying, hey, in the coming, in the coming uh, passages, I'm just going to encourage you to have peace and to enjoy your rest because now that you've gotten a handle on your behavior, now that you're behaving like people who are true Christians, like people who are in Christ, things are going to go well, everything is great, the birds are chirping, the angels are singing, everything is going to be wonderful. And that's what his next portion of scripture should be, isn't it? Makes sense. But unfortunately, that's not how it's done. That's not what happens. You might think that the Christian life is going to be easy now because we've mastered all of these things. We've learned these things. But that's not what Paul says. He follows all of that instruction up with one more command. And I want to show that command to you quickly this morning. It's found in verse 10. Take a look at this. Finally, and this is Paul's way of following my wife's advice and saying, in conclusion, In conclusion then, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. After all the commands to submit, after all the commands to sacrifice, after all the commands to obey, Paul does not suggest that you're going to have it made and that life is going to be easy. What he does is he gives you the command to be strong now. Now that you've done all of those things, you need to be strong. And I found that to be really interesting as I thought about it. And I was reminded of the many times in the Old Testament where people were commanded to be strong. Can you think of any of those? I remember the command of Moses to the people of Israel after they had made their way out of Egypt and they were about to make their way across the desert into the promised land. And this is the instruction of Moses to the Israelites. He says in Deuteronomy 20 and verse 2, And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. 
So here, basically what you have is you have a nation that is on the verge of a battle against an enemy who is much, much stronger. The priest stands up in front of the entire nation and he says, don't be afraid, don't panic. So what is he saying? He's saying, be strong. Don't worry about it. You need to be strong. And then I thought about that, and I thought also of Joshua, who, command, who commanded the nation of Israel after the death of Moses. And the Israelites were finally on the verge of taking over the promised land. They were right outside of it, and they were about to go into the promised land and begin their conquest, and they were going to fight everyone off. They were going to chase them all out of the land. And what did God say to Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 6? He said, be what? Be strong and be courageous. Now listen, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So Joshua, I want you to be strong because the battle that is coming up is going to seem insurmountable to you. This is going to be the biggest thing that the nation of Israel has ever faced. I want you to be strong. You're going to lead this nation into battle. You're going to run everyone off, Joshua. Be strong. When David's time to die had drawn near, It was time for him to pass leadership of the kingdom of Israel on to his son Solomon. You know what he said to him in 1 Kings chapter 2? He said this, be what? Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes. And I thought about that and I thought, what great advice for a dying father to give to his son. Son, I'm leaving. You're in charge now. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. I want you to be strong and I want you to act like a man. I want you to keep the word of God. Make yourself strong in the word of God. And we could cite, we could go on and on all morning citing other examples of this command to be strong. But I think what we've said is enough for today's purposes. So I want to move on because the important thing is that the inconsistent thread through all of those commands is that something big is about to happen. Do you see it? Every time the command to be strong is delivered, there's something big that is about to happen. Maybe it's a change of leadership. Maybe it's followed by a new charge from God or a new direction from God. But most commonly, anytime you see that command in the Old Testament, it is followed by a major fight and a major battle. So now as we look at the command to be strong in Ephesians 6.10, I want to just pause for a short moment. I want to take a look at one particular grammatical aspect of the command, and I won't linger there long, uh, but over the last several weeks, those of you who have been here with us have noticed several commands that we would refer to as present active imperatives. Remember we talked about that? And what it means is that they are commands that we are to be continually taking action to fulfill. Do you remember? For example, last week we caught the present active imperative command that children are to be continually taken action to obey their parents. Do you remember that? How many of you remember that one? Every hand should go up for that one. They must continually take action to respond to the instruction of their parents in humble obedience. That's what the Bible taught us last week. But the command that we see here in verse 10 is a little bit different than that. It's similar in some ways, but there are there is one important difference. Because this command is what we would call a present passive imperative. So once again, what you're seeing is a command that is in the present tense, so it takes this form of continual action, but this time the command is what we call passive. So it is not for us to take action, but it is for us to be acted upon. Do you see the difference? So here we are not to take action, we are to be acted upon. So it would sound very much like this, listen closely, be continually being made strong. Do you see? Do you see the difference? 
Be continually being made strong. So it's not like Paul is telling us that we need to go and hit the free weights like I do many times a day and make, you know, you can tell, right? I mean, we got to go and make ourselves strong. That's not what Paul is telling us to do. But we are the object of the action. Do you see? We are the object of the action in this case. So there is something that is continually taking action upon us and it makes us strong. Do you see that? That's the point. There's something that is working on us that is making us continually strong, and it builds us up, and we become stronger and stronger. So now I want to leave that there for a minute. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. So historically, whenever you see a command to be strong in Scripture, it is followed by a big change, and most often it's a significant battle. And I just want you to know that I don't, I don't really think that's coincidence. I mean, here is Paul, an expert in Old Testament writings, And he puts that command here in Ephesians, and I think he does it on purpose. There's a reason that he does that, and I want to show you why he does that. And to do that, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 12, and then in a few minutes we're going to come back and catch verse 11. But before we move to verse 12, I'm sure that you all are aware that the ancient Greeks just loved athletic events. We all knew that, right? That's where the Olympics were born. And one of the most popular events was wrestling. And there was this form of wrestling that was known as pankrateion. Or all strength is what it means. It means all strength, which is just ground wrestling is what they called it. And so this kind of wrestling was kind of a no-holds-barred wrestling event, which was kind of a combination between boxing and wrestling, a lot like you might think of ultimate fighting today without the gloves. And the goal was for the combatants to force one another into submission. That's kind of how it works today, isn't it? And you see, anything could go. You could do anything, but... You're not allowed to bite, just, which is good. I think that's a good rule. And you were not allowed to use your finger to poke the other guy in the eye. You weren't supposed to be gouging him in his eye. So, I mean, they did, even back then, they had some rules. You couldn't bite people and you couldn't gouge them in the eyes with your thumbs or whatever. I mean, you had to be strong. And the goal was for you to force the other guy to submit. And you see, often, fighters were very, very proud. And you'd have fighters who were too proud to submit. And so as they were fighting and as they were wrestling... It was not uncommon for their limbs to be broken, for their limbs to be dislocated and pulled out of joint. It was not uncommon for wrestlers to die while they were wrestling because they refused to submit. In fact, it was just this vicious battle. And it was not for weaklings. The weak people didn't enter into this thing. It was for strong people. It was for those people who were strong and healthy. In fact, the most famous Olympic wrestler of the time was Arakeon. And in the final match of Arakeon's great career, he and his unknown opponent were grappling and they were fighting and they were wrestling. And somehow his opponent had squeezed Arakeon's body with his legs. And so he had his legs wrapped around his body and he was squeezing as tightly as he could. And at the same time, he had his hands wrapped around Arakeon's throat and he was choking him as they were fighting. As Arakeon was being choked, somehow he managed to take a hold of his opponent's foot. And he applied such great pressure to his foot that he dislocated his ankle. And Arakeon's opponent, as he writhed in the pain of his dislocated ankle, tapped out. But what he didn't know was that at the precise moment that he had tapped out, Arakeon had died of suffocation. You see, it was a gruesome and it was a fierce battle. And they were going all out at each other. And Arakeon had won, but it cost him his life. He paid everything to win that battle. He was in a vicious battle. It was an all-out fight. 
You may be surprised to know that's the word that Paul uses in our passage today. He says that's what's going on with you. You see, this is the path. This is the battle that Paul is preparing you for. This is the battle for which Paul said, be strong. This is why Paul told you to strengthen yourselves, to be made strong, because you are in a battle, and it's an all-out battle. Friends, hear me, it is a life or death wrestling match, but it's not against Arachion. And unfortunately, I want you to know that it's not against your unsubmissive wife. Wives, it's not your husband who seemingly refuses to sacrifice for you that you're wrestling against. It's not your disobedient children. It's not your oppressive boss. It's not your lazy employees. Listen to me, friends. Your battle is with something very, very different. Let's take a look at verse 12 and see what that is. What is it that we wrestle against? Well, we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, I think that it's often easy for believers to become very, very nearsighted. Do you know what I mean by that? You see, I think the struggles with our families, I think the struggles with our employers... And I think everything else that all command our time, they become so all-consuming that we miss the real battle. We don't realize what is going on all around us. You see, the mundane nature of our lives, all the homework, all the laundry, the paying the bills, all of these things require so much of our thought, they require so much of our effort that we have totally forgotten that those really are not the things that matter. Yet, We spend all of our time with them. We become obsessed with the temporary things. We become ruled by the minutiae of our lives. We give every moment's thought to the minutiae and the things that are insignificant, all the tiny things. And then there are some of us who can think a little bit broader, and we we might say to ourselves, well, there's crime and there's violence in the city. But for the most part, it's all on the other side of town. It doesn't really trouble me that much in my suburb. I'm doing fine. Or maybe you can think even bigger than that and you can remember all the stories of history and, and you look at that and you think, you know, it really has been years since the world had to worry about mass genocide at the hands of people like Hitler in Europe in World War II or, or the Cambodians of the, the 1970s. Those things demand our attention and they loudly scream to us that the world is filled with evil, but they don't impact us often because we don't see them very much, do we? We're sheltered. We're busy living our lives. We're busy doing our laundry. We're busy paying our bills. And we don't realize that evil is at work all around us. You see, we're enlightened. We're a tolerant society. We welcome all kinds of beliefs. We welcome all preferences. Yeah, we know there's more to life than just my little world, but you know, I know that there are some leaders in Washington who are you know, maybe in other parts of the world who aren't very nice. I get that. But generally, my world is pretty good. I just have to keep doing my laundry, keep paying my bills, But you see, those are the thoughts of minds that are locked into temporal and earthly things. Did you hear that? We are consumed with our little lives. And maybe those who are really enlightened may be concerned with global issues. But generally, I'm concerned about my own little world and my own struggle. Can you confess that today? Isn't that what you're really worried about? But may I suggest to you that you're really missing the real battle? May I suggest to you that there are things that are going on all around you and you are not aware of them at all? Those things, your life, yeah, those important as they may seem to you, you need to understand that you are focusing on temporal and earthly matters and you are allowing the real battle to pass you by. You are missing it. 
You see, the problem is, in our world, it's really not just as easy as crime and politics and paying the bills. The problem is that there are spiritual battles that rage all around us, and we don't recognize them because we don't physically see the players in the battle. But I want you to know, those players and those battles are the things that impact your daily lives. They influence every decision. They influence all of those terrible things that we see happening all across the world. They are a result of this evil influence that is battling and this fight that is raging all around us. And I want you to know that whether you realize it or not, all around you, there's spiritual battle taking place. It's in the spiritual realm. And it's fierce. And it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Angelic and demonic forces are real, and they battle all around you, just like Arachion, fighting for their lives. Do you know that Satan and his demons know that Christ inflicted the death blow to their cause at the cross? Did you know that? He knows. And those who work for him know that they have been dealt the death blow. They know that. They know that they have already been sentenced to an eternity in the bottomless pit and in hell. Right now they know that. And right now they know that they are just waiting for that sentence to be imposed. They are waiting while they are waiting for that to happen. And so while they wait, do you know that what they do is that they war and that they battle as hard as they possibly can, hoping that somehow they can change their destiny? Did you know that? They constantly battle, hoping to destroy the power of God and to destroy all things that are godly. And I want you to know that one of the most powerful forces for God in the modern world is the true church. And I want you to know that those forces want to destroy that too. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, Scott, I'm not really sure all this stuff is real. I want to tell you, it's real. Those forces battle one another, and they are active in our world today, and they influence the things that are happening in your lives. The book of Daniel God had dispatched a messenger to the prophet Daniel in chapter 10 and verse 13. It's there that we find that a demonic force confronted that messenger and held him up for 21 days battling him to stop him from getting the message to Daniel. Did you know that? And the battle was so fierce that ultimately God had to dispatch one of the archangels, the one that's named Michael, to come to assist the messenger, and Michael overpowered the demonic force and the messenger was then freed to go to Daniel. Did you know that that happened? Did you know that when Moses, the great prophet of God, died, that the book of Jude tells us that Michael, the archangel, actually fought with Satan himself over Moses' body? Did you know that? Satan certainly wanted to do some perverse thing with the body of Moses. Maybe you can imagine the false religious system that he could have conceived in his mind with a relic like the body of the great prophet Moses. But for whatever reason, he wanted to do something with the body of Moses, and Michael fought him for it. And ultimately, did you know, according to Deuteronomy 34, 6, that it was God himself who took the body of Moses and buried it? Did you know that? Are you aware that the Gospels are filled with accounts of people who were indwelled and controlled by demonic powers? The record tells us that Jesus and his apostles drove out many of those. And I want you to know that those are just some of the examples of demonic activity. Just a few. But what about angelic activity? What about the good forces? Did you know that they're real as well? Two angels visited Lot in Genesis 19, and it seems that he didn't recognize them as angels. Two angels visited and stayed with him for several days, and he didn't realize that's what they were. In Numbers 22, I love this one, Balaam's donkey was able to see the angel of the Lord, which may well have been a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ himself, pre-incarnate. And the donkey saw him. 
But Balaam himself didn't see the angel of the Lord. And the donkey stopped because he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his path. Balaam, who couldn't see it, began to beat his donkey and kick him and hit him, trying to get him to go. I love the donkey's response. You can read that yourself. In 2 Kings 6, the king of Syria had laid siege to the city of Dothan, hoping to capture the prophet Elisha. Elisha's servants saw the Syrian army, and he was horrified. And Elisha was cool as a cucumber, man. And he looked at his servant and he said, chapter 6, verse 16, don't be afraid. I love this. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And can you imagine the response of his servant? What the heck are you even talking about, Elisha? We don't have any army. We don't have any people standing next to us. It's just you and me and all of the work, all of the people of the city, all the peasants. How are we going to fight them? And I love what happened then. Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and you know what he saw? Behold, or wow, the mountain was full of horses and it was full of chariots of fire. All around Elisha, friends, that was the army of God right there with them, surrounding them, and they had no idea that it was there. Even this godly man who had served with Elisha for all these years had no clue that that army was there, and they were there, and God opened his eyes so that he could see it. In the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that we should be sure to show love and kindness to everyone. Do you know why? Take a look at chapter 13 and verse 2. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This is note to self, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Did you know that? So the book of Hebrews says those beings are active all around you, and some of you, maybe even sitting here today, have possibly even entertained them or shown hospitality to angels, and you haven't even known that you've done it. Apparently angels have the ability to take human form and to appear as normal human beings so that some people have met them and have not even known that they've met them. I want you to know that I don't say these things to frighten you. I don't say these things to worry you. I say these things to tell you that supernatural powers are very, very real, and they're all around us. And that's where the real battle is. They're all around us. And one thing that you can be sure of, listen closely, wherever the kingdom of God is making progress, the kingdom of darkness will be actively trying to create opposition. You see? Satan and his kingdom constantly battle the work of God. I want you to know that they even infiltrate the church, placing false teachers in the true church to create chaos. They plant false teachers in the true church who will pervert doctrine and teach falseness to deceive as many people as they possibly can. And I want you to know that it's those kinds of things that cause people to be enslaved to false doctrine and to tradition, and it causes people to be so unlocked and entrenched in their tradition and their false doctrine that they can't break free. It's false teaching. And I want you to know that those same forces attack God's true teachers, and they attack His true leaders with the temptations of pride and of greed and sexual fulfillment. They do anything they can to thwart the purposes of God. They do anything they can to thwart the plans of God. And I want you to know that they will attack anyone who is making progress in the war to fight back sin and darkness. They will attack them. At the beginning of the ministry of Christ, Satan was active, wasn't he? He followed Christ into the wilderness, and he tempted him with food. He tempted him with pride. The Bible tells us that the angels came to minister to Christ So there you see demonic forces and angelic forces both battling over Jesus Christ. 
During his ministry, we know that Satan pursued Jesus Christ by even using his closest disciples like Peter to be a hindrance to him, according to Matthew 16. The night before Jesus would face the most terrible, excruciating trial of his life, as he faced the cross, Satan pursued him into the garden and he tempted him to walk away. He tempted him to walk away from the will of the Father. He tempted him to walk away from the Father's plan. And the Bible tells us that what happened? That angels came and tended to him. And you know what they did? They strengthened him. As he was in the middle of this battle, they strengthened him. And would you believe, without you even knowing it, angels have done the same for you. You don't know it. You don't see them. They're in the spirit realm. They're spiritual. And you're in the physical realm. But the Bible says in Hebrews 1.14 about angels, are they not all ministering spirits? And who are they sent to? They're sent to serve for the sake of those people who are to inherit salvation. Who is that? Who in this room is going to inherit salvation? Now listen, when you hear teaching like this, the unfortunate temptation is for you to take it and to get your theology all derailed and have all kinds of problems by finding angels and demons under every single rock and behind every single door and every single curtain. We don't want to do that. That's not the point. The point is to tell you that the battle is raging all around you. And where God's people who will inherit salvation are at work doing the work of God, the forces of evil will be present trying to thwart that work. That's the point. Demons will oppose the work of God. Angels will minister to those who do the work of God. It's a spiritual battle, and that's what Paul is talking about here. The battle is about much more than just you. I've said this to us several times. It's not about you. The battle is about so much more than just you. Do you get that? It's not just about you. It's not about your job. It's not about your school. It's not about your finance. It's not about your wife who won't submit. It's not about your husband who won't give you everything you want. It's not about your kids who won't obey. It's not about you. It's about eternal life. And it's about eternal death. It's about heaven. And it's about hell. And it's real. And you must be strong. So why in the world did Paul put this here? Have you wondered that? What a strange place to put this passage. And I want to help you understand why it's there. It's very simple. See, in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, what we have is people who are believers. Do you see? In Ephesians 1 through 3, in 1 through 3 we have people who are in Christ. We have those people who are going to inherit salvation. Do you know? In chapters 4 through 6, what is happening is those people who are going to inherit salvation begin to act like people who are inheriting salvation, and they begin to have an impact on the world. Do you see that? They are humbly sacrificing for one another. They are humbly sacrificing for the kingdom of God. Now listen, that kind of church is going to face opposition from the forces of evil, and that's exactly what happened to the Ephesian church. Did you know that? They began to face some serious opposition. Some of you may not be aware of some of the opposition that they faced. The Apostle Paul came to that city, the city of Ephesus, and he decided that he was going to plant a church. God had placed this plan in his heart to plant a church and start a new church right there in that city. But the city was a vile group of idol worshipers who worshipped at the temple of Artemis in this satanic cult of drunkenness and orgies. That's what they were, and that's what Paul walked into. And when he came into the city of Ephesus, determined to plant a church, he went to the Jewish synagogue where he figured he would be shown some favor as he presented the Word of God. And so he began to preach at the Jewish synagogue. And there were people in those Jewish synagogues who believed in Christ and they were converted. And so the powers of darkness then began to oppose him and they began to take notice. And those people from the Jewish synagogues who did not believe said, wait a minute, 
His teaching is against what? Well, it's against our tradition. That's not the way I always heard it. That's not the way I've learned it. This man is teaching against my tradition. And so they rejected him. And I want you to know that's always a red flag to false teaching. When people would rather cling to their tradition than to the Word of God, that should send up a red flag to us. And so Paul taught those people who believed, but the force of Satan led the others to become very antagonistic. And you know what they did? They stood up and they said, you are not teaching that stuff in our synagogues anymore. We want you out of here. And so Paul said, okay, I'll do that. And I'll take all those people who have been converted and I'm just going to go right next door and I'm going to go to the school of Tyrannus. And so Paul took his believers and he went to the school of Tyrannus and he began to teach them every single day for two years, day in, day out. He taught them the word of God and he made them strong and God's kingdom was advancing and great things were happening and the city was being turned upside down and people were beginning to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He was performing miracles. People were being converted and people who were playing around with all sorts of magic began to burn their magic books. They began to smash and burn their idols. And you know what happened? As a result of that, Satan's army raised up and they created this huge riot. They took notice and there was this huge riot that broke out. The people in the city who worked in the trades making the gods and idols found that people weren't buying their stuff anymore because they were being converted and they didn't believe that garbage anymore. And so they became upset because they were losing money because nobody was buying their stuff because they were turning toward God and they were smashing their idols. And Acts 19 tells us that the Word of God was growing and the Word of God was overtaking the city. And so Satan attacked. And at some point we know that Paul was maybe even thrown into an arena filled with wild beasts and had to fight them off. They tried to kill him. Friends, that's opposition to a good work that God is doing in a godless society. Satan's army was opposing the work of God. And I want you to know that it still happens that way today. And you can be sure that right here at Root River Church, if we develop the same humble and loving hearts of the believers in Ephesus, that we are going to face opposition. You need to know that. And that's why Paul tells us here you need to be strong and you need to fight because the opposition is real and the trouble is coming. So then how is it that we're to be strong? How do we stand against that? And I think some people might say, well, I know how to handle the forces of Satan, Scott. Don't worry about that. I'm going to bind this one. And I'm going to bind that one. And I'm going to send them off to the dry places. And I'm, I'm going to cast this one over here. And I'm going to throw that one over there. I know how to handle them. Because after all, Matthew 18 says, whatever is bound in heaven. And you know whatever I loose on, on earth is loose and bound in heaven. And i got to tell you, that's probably one of the worst understandings of the passage of Matthew 18. That, that I, What a terrible violation of Scripture. But do you know, friends, listen closely, you don't need to go around binding and rebuking. You don't need to do that. You don't know what you're dealing with. Listen closely. Do you know that even Michael the archangel himself, the archangel, was careful about rebuking Satan? Did you know that? The book of Jude tells us that as they were fighting over the body of, of Moses... But prior to that, the book of Jude tells us about false teachers who have crept their way inside the church and these, these people began to speak evil about spiritual beings. And Jude says this, they speak evil of things they don't know anything about. Speaking of spiritual beings. And verse 9, he says, when Michael was fighting with Satan, Michael was careful what he said. Did you know that? In fact, Michael himself did not revile Satan, the Bible tells us, but he said, the Lord rebuke you, right? 
He didn't say, I rebuke you, Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Listen, Satan is incredibly powerful. Isaiah and Ezekiel tell us about him. He was the most majestic being that God had ever made. And when he was cast out of heaven, he took one third of God's angels with him. He has millions and millions of demons working with him. He is not in hell. I want you to know that. Do you know where he's at? He is not in hell. He is walking around. He is prowling around on the earth like a roaring lion looking for somebody to tear into, looking for a church to destroy, looking for a work of God to tear down. Did you know that? You may be surprised to know that he very often is in the very presence of God. Satan himself in the presence of God, bringing accusation against the saints, bringing charges against God's elect. Michael the archangel did not rebuke him. Michael the archangel did not bind him, and I want you to know that neither can you. I can remember as a kid hearing people binding Satan, and I just kept wondering, why do they have to keep doing that? You know, I mean, this is the same lady that bound him last week. How did he get away? But the truth is that none of those people could bind Satan, and you can't bind him either. He's incredibly powerful, and he's loose, and he's active. He's defeated, but he's still loose, and he's still working. So don't be foolish. And don't revile and bind the things of spiritual realm that you don't understand. It's enough to know that when God is ready to bind him, Revelation chapter 20 says that God himself will bind him. He will be bound at that point and he will be thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. I want you to know that even then he's going to be released. He'll be bound again after that and he'll be permanently cast into hell. But until God does it, it's not happening. Leave it alone. Do your job. And what's your job? I mean, what am I supposed to do? If we're in a battle and I can't go around binding things, what's my role? What do I, I mean, what am I supposed to do with regard to Satan and his army? I'm going to take you to James 4, 7. I'm going to show you. This is the very first thing that you do. What do you do? Submit yourselves to God and do what? Resist him. You don't have to bind him. You don't have to try and beat him up. Just resist him and he'll leave you alone. You don't have to try to conquer him. He's already conquered. Just resist him. That's it. Submit to God. Line yourself up under the instruction of God. Let God take the lead. Be led. Be thrust forward in your lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you're faced with temptation, when you're faced with evil, when you feel that the powers of hell are attacking you, your job is to resist it. That's it. Just resist. Don't give in to the temptation. Just like Christ in the wilderness, like like Christ in the garden, resist him and he will go away from you. Oh, but it's so hard when I'm being tempted. I resist. I, I try so hard, but temptation and evil are just so crafty. I just can't beat it. How do I stand against that? Well, let me take you back now to verse 11. I'm going to help you answer that. It says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may do what? that you may be able to stand against him. So put on the whole armor of God and you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes here is the word methodeia, and it's where we get our word method. So listen, Satan has been around for a very, very long time, and he has honed his skills, and he has crafted his methods. He has had thousands of years to learn human nature and human behavior. He's had thousands of years to craft his attack and to plan his attack. Earlier in the message, I told you that the command to be strong was in the passive voice, which is to say that you are continually being made strong. Now listen, I want to get back to that. If you are made strong, you will be able to withstand his methodea. You will be able to withstand his craftiness if you are made strong. But I always cave in, Scott. I just, I can never win. Do you know why? Because you're not being made strong. That's why. You're not resisting. You're not being made strong. 
And if you are being made strong, you'll be able to withstand all of that. Because you don't do that on your own power. You do that on the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll be able to resist His craftiness. So what is it then that continually works in us, this strengthening that makes us strong so that we're able to stand against Him? Now I'm going to take you to verse 13. So let's bring ahead and look here. Therefore, do what? Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and to stand firm. You see, it's the armor of God that empowers you to resist the devil. It's the power, it's the armor of God that gives you the power to withstand the evil day. It's the armor that enables you to withstand when evil comes. So what you need to do is just put on your armor and resist. That's all you have to do. Put on your armor, get yourselves dressed for battle, and once you've got your armor on, you've done all you can do, just resist, God will take it from there. Submit to God, line yourselves up under Him and His teaching, resist the enemy, put on your armor so that you can be made strong, so the next time that we're together, we're going to learn how to get dressed. And we're going to learn how to wear all those different pieces of armor so that you will know how to be made strong. Father, I thank You so much. No matter how wildly the battle rages all around us, that You are in control. And I am so thankful that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. And I pray, Lord, that You would give us confidence to stand firm. I pray that You would give us confidence to resist in the time of temptation. I pray, God, that You would strengthen us, that we would be made continually stronger as we stand and that, that as we battle, that we might be able to stand up under the temptation. We might be able to endure the glory of Your kingdom. I pray, God, that You would help us to be busy about Your work. I pray that You would help us to be cognizant of the things that are going on all around us that we can accomplish your work and your purpose for your kingdom's glory. I pray that you would help us to do our part to fight back the powers of sin and of darkness. So Lord, I just pray that you would fight the battle for us. And I thank you that we can be confident knowing that you have already dealt the death blow. That Satan and his forces have already been sentenced. And that soon, you're going to come and lock them up for them to serve their time. So I pray that you would help us to clothe ourselves in the meanwhile with the armor and be strengthened, knowing that ultimately, you win.